So, uh, so the question is, uh, could you talk about Shiva Prakasham Pillai? How was his association with Bhagwan Ramana? And also, what did Bhagwan mean when he said Shiva Prakasham, Shiva Prakasham Ana, when someone told him Shiva Prakasham had passed away? Um, Shiva Prakasham Pillai was the perfect disciple because before coming to Bhagavan, he uh, what the central question that was in his mind, the central question for which he was looking for an answer was, who am I? When he was at uh, college, he had studied some Indian philosophy. So he had learned the basics of Vedanta. Um, he knew I am not this body and so on and so forth. But he still wasn't satisfied. That is, how do we actually, merely studying in books, and um, it's not sufficient. We we can't know ourselves just by studying books. So he understood that. So he was looking for a guru who could show him how to find out who am I. So when he came to Bhagavan in about 1901, uh, when Bhagavan was just a young boy of maybe 20, 20 21 years old, Shiva Prakashan Palai, who was a few years older than him, came and, uh, and asked him. The first question he asked was, Swami, who am I? So such a perfect attunement of the, of the disciple and the guru. That is, the, he was the perfect disciple. So he asked that question, and because he was very, very serious in his in, in, in his longing to know and to find out who am I, he, uh, he after Bowen gave the first answer, he asked a series of questions, uh, which are all very useful questions. And because of the sincerity of his questions, Bhagavan gave deep answers. Uh, So the first question he asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? To which Bhagavan replied, Arivainan. Arivainan means awareness alone is I. Later, Shivpayan Palai added his own clarification. So most of the second paragraph of Nana, I I am not this... uh, this uh, body, I'm not all, all, all of that. That was added by Shiv Kashan Palai for his own clarification. But the, actually, the first answer, the, the, his answer Bhagavan gave to his first question was simply Arivainan, awareness alone is I. And then Shiv Kashan Palai asked, What is the nature or swarupa of that Aribu? And Bhagavan said, Satchitananda. And then there were a series of, uh, of, of uh, questions and answers. In those days, Bhagavan was talking very little. So a lot of it was um, Shiv Prakashan Palai would ask his questions and Bhagavan would just write on in the sandy ground. He would write his answers with his finger. So to, to save Bhagavan the inconvenience of writing in the sandy ground, Shiv Prakashan Palai then started to bring uh, a ch- slate and chalk or a... Uh, piece of paper and and the pencil so some of the he kept some of the original what Bhagavan had written and he copied everything else as Bhagavan had written it so Nana is a very accurate uh, recording of what Bhagavan replied to him and 
she can play with a very humble devotee. He hadn't come for anything except for his own salvation. So for many years, none of the devotees knew about what he had recorded. Shibukash and Play was also a, a good poet in, in Tamil. So he once wrote a biography of Bhagavan in Tamil verse. In fact, that's the first biography of Bhagavan. He's called Ramacharita Ahaval. Ahaval is a particular meter which can go on for any number of lines. So it's all, the whole biography is one verse of many lines. And in that biography, he also summarized the teachings that Bhagavan had given him when he first came there. So in around 1922 or 23, when um, his, he had, Shiv Kanpalai had a nephew, Manikampalai, who was like a disciple to him. I mean, he was, he was always uh, with Shiv Kanpalai and served him very devotedly till the end. So, um, uh, Manikampalai felt this biography should be published, so he brought it to Bhagavan and uh, and told Bhagavan that it was his wish to have this uh, biography published. And with the help of some friends, it was published. He also brought to Bhagavan. It was Shibkarnpalai's suggestion that, if, along with this biography, since he had written a summary of Bhagavan's teachings, he should also include. Um, uh, the questions and answers, or at least a summary of the questions and answers, but Bhagavan had, uh, but he had asked Bhagavan and the answer that Bhagavan had given him. So um, he also brought those questions and answers. When Bhagavan saw the questions and answers, when he saw the answer to the first question, which Shiv Kashmpalai had had uh, expanded with the neti neti portion, um, Bhagavan looked at him and said, "Oh." I didn't say all this. Where did all this come from? And my, before Manikampalai could uh, explain, Bhagavan said, ah, he would have added this for his own clarification. Yes, let it remain. It will also be helpful for some people. Um, so Bhagavan approved of that, and it was published. So the, the first edition of Nana was published about 1923 as, as an appendix to Charita Haval. That first uh, edition, I think if I remember correctly, it had 25 questions and answers. Um, subsequently, because um, when devotees read this, they were so impressed by this. Many people asked Shiv Kashin Palai, did you, get, did you record any more answers? So a year or two later, the, uh, Nana was published as a separate book consisting of 30 questions and answers and various miscellaneous sayings at the end. Uh, so that was the first separate edition. Then in the second edition, I think, of Ramana Charita Ahaval, Shivakashan Pillai, since he had published the questions and answers separately, he abbreviated it in the appendix down to 13 questions and answers. Um, that 13 question and answer version, um, was was translated by um, into English by Bibi Narasimha Swami, and included in self-realization. But Bibi Narasimha Swami um, added one question at the beginning. That is, as an introduction, there was a line 
the investigation, who am I, alone will give liberation. Um, so um, uh, uh, Bhiva Narasimha Swami added a question before that, making it into 14 questions and answers, though actually it was only 13. Um, that he had translated from the appendix of the second edition of Ramana Charita Haval. That uh, was subsequently when the next biography, after the English biography, I mean the book-length biography, was the first one was Bhimi Narasimhaswamis in English. A year or two later, uh, Sudananda Bharati wrote a Tamil biography of Bhagavan, Ramana Vijayam, which he was based mainly on self-realization. So seeing these questions and answers in English, he translated them back into Tamil. So that there was some people are confused. It, isn't the version in Ramana Vijayam? Isn't that the correct version? Isn't that the original version? Because it's written there that that was the original version. No, it's not. That was the the uh, 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 Tamil translation of English translation of the 13 question and answer version. So for some years, this 30 question and answer version was the main version. But in about 1926 or 27, Bhagavan of his own accord rewrote it in the form of an essay. The reason he did that is some of the answers could be potentially misunderstood. They could lead to wrong understanding. So to refine it, that if the answers he had given, she can play recorded as, as Bhagavan had said it, but it wasn't always said in the most refined way. For example, it, um, in the early questions and answers, it is said as if um, our real nature is the seer. Uh, which is not, is the, the trick. But that is not literally true. That is, our real nature is the real nature of ego, which is the seer. So because of such, um, such things could give room for misinterpretation. So Bhagavan, when he rewrote it, he removed all things that could give room for um, confusion. Another thing he, Bhagavan, removed was... Um, one of the questions was, cannot God or Guru um, give liberation? And Bhagavan says, no, God or Guru cannot give liberation. Uh, but it's, the, the devotee has to, has to investigate who am I. That's what's necessary. That is true in a sense. That is, liberation is not something that we can be given. Liberation is our own real nature. Guru can point, show us the way, and give us the strength to turn within. But it's not, it, that is, we have, the, our part is necessary. We must be willing to yield ourselves to the pull of his grace, to turn our attention back within. So that's why Bhagavan said, God and Guru cannot give liberation. But that may be misunderstood by people. People not understanding the, the, the nuanced meaning, the subtle sense in which Bhagavan said that, they could say, oh, Bhagavan says, God and Guru cannot give liberation. That can give, then only I as ego can get liberation. That can lead to a misunderstanding. So certain things Bhagavan omitted. Other things he refined and uh, clarified, and he wrote this essay. So the essay version of Nana is the, is the principal version. Even after this essay version was published, 
for some years, this 30-question and answer version continued to be published because it was very popular. Um, people like to read questions and answers rather than a, a, um, an essay as a treatise. So th that continued to be uh, popular. But uh, Raman Ashram didn't begin um, publishing books until 1931. Before that, most of the books were published by a group of devotees, and they published it under the, um, under the name Ramaniya Vana Pustakalayam uh, Tiruvannamalai. That was the, the that uh, under that name, many of Bhagavan's works have been published earlier, and some things have been published by individual devotees under their own name. I mean, not giving their name as, as, as author, but they, as a publisher, they have, they have published it. Um, so the Raman Ashram began publication in 1931. Since this 30-question answer version was still in print, and the last edition, I, the last edition I've seen of the 30-question answer was published in 1931, in the same year, uh, Raman Ashram brought out a 28-question-answer version. That 28-question-answer version was a, an edited form of the 30-question-answer version, trying to incorporate some of the improvements that Bhagavan had made in the, um, in the essay version. But unfortunately, that 28-question-answer version wasn't very well edited. Uh, there's one answer, one, one answer is repeated twice, and um, some of the things that Bhagavan had deliberately omitted were included there. So, but anyway, that since that time, this 28-question answer version has become, has is the most well-known version. But anyway, I say that because that's, so when you ask about Shiva Prakash and Palai, Shiva Prakash and Palai is inseparable from this great treasure that we have as a result of his, um, of his, sincere mumukshutva and guru bhakti, namely Nana. Without him, we would not have this very, very precious work. So um, we we all have to be, we are all eternally indebted to Shiv Kashan Pillai for that great service he did. <clears throat> he was a very, very simple and humble devotee. So whenever he came to Bhagavan, that is, Sadhu Om didn't come to Bhagavan until 1946. So that was in the last years of Bhagavan's life. So he saw Shiv Prakash and Pillai first, when she, one of the times when Shiv Prakash and Pillai visited. And he, because he had been told that this is Shiv Prakash and Pillai, he knew he, who he was. But he said, if you didn't know who he was, no one would, they would think some simple villager has come and sat in the back of the hall. That, that is, he was, he was so uh, humble and um, unassuming. He would just sit in the back of the hall, just like any ordinary visitor. Um, and he, though he had come to Bhagavan in 1901, he never actually lived with Bhagavan. He used to visit. And even after he resigned his job, he continued to live in his village. Um, and he used to often visit Bhagavan, but he never actually lived in, uh, in Ramanashram. I think, uh, I, I assume he understood it's better sometimes to be at a distance. And uh, I mean, once we understand what is to be done, it's not necessary for us to be always in the physical presence of Bhagavan, because Bhagavan's teaching is, but the 
Guru is not the physical form. Guru is that which is shiny in our heart as I. So, so what is important is that we keep our mind dwelling on the Guru's teachings and trying to put them into practice. That is, very, that is a much more refined form of satsanga than simply being in the physical presence of Guru. So, um, Sri Prasampal, I didn't live in Bhagavan present, but he used to visit. So uh, Sadhuam said he saw him a few times when he visited. And Sadhuam uh, uh, became, a, and Manik and Palai became close friends. So Sadhuam was present there when Manik, when a telegram came from Manik and Palai, I think that was in 1949, saying that Shiva and Palai had passed away. So that the telegram was, uh, it was obviously came to the ashram office and it was at once sent to uh, the hall. So someone came from the office and handed this telegram to Bhagavan. Bhagavan looked at the telegram and he smiled and he said, Shiva Prakasam, Shiva Prakasam Ana. That means Shiva Prakasam has become the light of Shiva. In other words, Bhagavan is saying he has merged back into. He, he's become one with the supreme reality, with Shiva. So, I mean, that was a very, very clear and explicit um, uh, statement by Bhagavan. But Shiva Kashim Play had attained the goal for which he's so earnestly uh, sought. Um, so that's, I mean, Bhagavan has a very simple and very uh, unobtrusive way of indicating things. <clears throat> um, I mean, we you, we can't turn down it. But if someone said, "Oh, Bhagwan, are you saying that he attained liberation?" Bhagwan said, "No, I simply said he's become the light of Shiva. He's merged in the light of well, it literally means become. He's become the light of Shiva, but he left it to people to understand what he meant. So um, yes, that is Bhagwan. By saying that, he very very clearly indicated." Um, but Shiv Prakashan Palai, but he had swallowed the ego of Shiv Prakashan Palai, in other words. And um, so Shiv Prakashan had become the light of Shiva. But Shiv the name Shiva Prakashan, Prakashan means the light or the shining, the shining of Shiva. So Shiva Prakashan has become the shining of Shiva. The shining of Shiva is the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as I am. In other words, he had merged back into a source from which he had risen by the grace of his uh, Guru Bhagavan Ramana. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya. And may Bhagavan save us also in the same way. The next question, Michael, is, um, is in two parts. The first part is, does our real nature, Sat Chit Anand, ever admit the existence of ego? The second part of the question is, if we are pure being, there cannot be knowing of something else. So why is eradication of ego, shubhvasanas and ashubhvasanas, etc., explained so much? All doing can only be for the ego. Our real nature has nothing to do with it. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in the view of our real nature, our real nature alone exists. As Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, 
What actually exists is only the real nature of ourself. That real nature of ourself, as you say, it is Satchitananda. As Bhagavan says in verse 28 of Rupadeshundia, if one knows the, what the real nature of oneself is, then Anadi, Ananta, Akanda, Satchitananda. Uh, that is, the implication is that if we know what we actually are, what we actually are is Anadi, Ananta, Satchitananda, and that alone is what will remain. Anadi means beginningless. Because it's not in it, it precedes time. That is, time appears only in the view of ego. So time comes, so it's beginningless. Ananta. Ananta means not only endless, but also limitless. In other words, it's infinite. It has no limits of any kind whatsoever. And it is a kanda, it is unbroken, it's undivided. So it is one indivisible whole. Uh, and it is its nature is Satchidananda. Sat means pure being. Chit means pure awareness. Ananda means pure happiness. That is what we actually are. That alone is what is real. That alone is what actually exists. Um, so in the view of, of our real nature, of course, there's no ego, no world, no body, nothing. There is just Satchidananda, nothing other than Satchidananda. That is, as Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uladunapadu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. What does he mean by saying if oneself is a form? Our real nature is formless. But when we rise as ego, we do so taking the form of a body as ourself. Grasping form, it comes into existence, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uladunapadu. So, uh, when we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be the form of a body. Because we take ourselves to be a form, we see forms. Uh, then in the next sentence of that verse 4, he says, if oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? Implying that when we don't, when we don't mistake ourselves to be a form, there's no one to see any forms. Forms appear only in the view of ego, but takes itself to be a form. And then he says, uh, can the nature of what is seen be otherwise than the nature of what is, uh, than the eye that sees it? In other words, if we take ourselves to be a form, we'll see forms. If we take, if we experience ourselves as formless as we actually are, we will see only formlessness. And then he concludes by that verse by saying, the I, I means not uh, the, not the pronoun I, the uh, physical organ of sight, uh, I mean, but he's using that word metaphorically there. The I is the uh, is oneself, the infinite I. What he means by that is the real I, the real awareness. Uh, he's using uh, I there as a metaphor for awareness. The real awareness is oneself, the infinite awareness. What is infinite is formless. That is, every form is a limitation. So all forms are finite. If you're, what is infinite is devoid of form. So since we are infinite and therefore formless, our real nature, what can it know? It can only know itself. It can only know what is infinite and formless. It cannot know any any finite things. It cannot know any forms. So, yes, from the perspective of our real nature, there is neither ego, the subject, 
nor any objects. There's no phenomena whatsoever. There is only itself, pure being. Um, so that's the first part of the question. Is uh, the ego ego seems to exist only in the view of ego, not in the view of our real nature. Um, so that's the first part of the question. What can you repeat the second part just so I get it fully? Shalini, can you repeat it? Yes. So the second part of the question is, uh, if we are pure being, there cannot be knowing of something else. So why is, is eradication of ego, shubhvasanas and ashubhvasanas, etc., explain so much? All doing can only be for the ego. Our real nature has nothing to do with it. The reason all this is explained is we have a problem. Yes, our real nature is pure being. And for pure being, but pure being, as Bhagavan says in verse 23 of, of Upadesha India, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. So what exists is ourself. That what we actually are is awareness. So um, but that awareness is not awareness that knows anything other than itself. It is just the shining of its own being. So, uh, so what actually exists or being is awareness. Awareness is the only thing that actually exists. And then he concludes that verse saying that awareness exists as we. That is, we ourselves for that awareness, which alone is what actually exists. So... Um, our, our nature as pure being is not knowing anything other than ourself, but knowing ourself alone. So yes, as pure being, there is no knowing of anything else. But we have a problem. Now we know other things. As Bhagavan begins to because we see the world. Because we see the world, that means we've got a big problem. Because when we, whenever we see the world, we see ourselves as a body within that world. So it's only from the perspective of this body that we see a world. Whenever we dream, we always experience ourselves as a body within that dream. So this is a big problem. So all teachings are given to uh, remove this problem. The ultimate truth is, as Bhagavan clarified, the ultimate truth is ajata, no ego, or body, or world, or anything else has ever come into existence or ever appeared at all. But if Bhagavan simply sits there, and we come to him with our problems, and Bhagavan says, there's no problem at all, how's that going to help us? So Bhagavan has to come down to our level. He has to, or he has to seemingly come down to our level. He has to acknowledge the seeming existence of ego. Bhagavan never said ego actually exists, but he acknowledged that ego seems to exist in the view of ego, not in the view of our real nature, Atmasarupa. There's no in the view of Atmasarupa, there's no ego at all. But in the view of ourself as ego, ego seems to exist. And because ego seems to exist, everything else seems to exist. So Bhagavan gave his teachings from the perspective, but of uh of um, of vivartavada, he accepts that all these things are there, but they are only vivartavada. They are just a, an appearance, and all this appearance 
appears in whose view? Only in the view of ego. And in whose view does ego exist? Only in the view of ego. So Bhagavan teaches us about all these things in order to show us how to get rid of this uh, problem. That is, everything else seems to exist only in the view of ego. So the root problem is ego. Without ego, there'll be no problem. When, we, when we're asleep, there's no ego and therefore no problem. Problems arise only when we rise as ego in waking or dream. So in order to permanently put an end to all problems, all we need to do is to permanently put an end to this ego. Since ego is not real, putting an end to it should be easy. And indeed it is easy if we are willing, if we have sufficient love. So ego is nothing but a false awareness of ourself. That our real nature is pure awareness. I am. But as ego, we are not aware of ourselves as just I am. We are aware of ourselves as I am this body. I am this person. I am Michael. I am Shalini. I am whoever. But whatever be the name of the body that we take to be ourselves, that we say, I am this, this man. This is my name. This is my body. I am this body. This is the, this is the, nature of ego, that is, there are two defining characteristics of ego. Firstly, as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, whatever the body may be. The body changes from state to state. The body we take to be ourselves in dream is not this body. Because if that body is injured, this body won't be injured. If this body is injured, that body need not be injured. So they're not the same body. Um, but they, we experience them as, we, as the same identity. That is, when we are dreaming, we continue to dream ourselves to be the same person we seem to be in waking state. Why is that? Because the dreams we have at night are dreams that occur within this dream. The whole of our present life, whatever person we take ourselves to be, the whole life is one dream. Within that dream, that dream is interrupted by periods of sleep. And the sleep is interrupted by further dreams. So the dreams we have at night are, the, are dreams within a dream. That's why we, we seem to be the same person in those dreams. When this dream, the dream of our present life, comes to an end, if the ego is not annihilated, we'll begin to dream some other dream. Then we'll have some other identity. We, may, we, could, be any, we, we could be anyone. Um, so... Uh, um, so the root problem is ego, and the problem is not the body, because the body is born and it dies, but that doesn't solve our problem, because so this body is just part of this dream. It's a dream identity. The problem is not the dream identity. The problem is the dreamer. The, the one who identifies itself as I am this person, I am this body, that is the problem. So the two defining characteristics of ego are, Firstly, as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently aware of things other than ourselves. Our real nature is never aware of anything other than itself. That's why it's called pure awareness, Suddha Chaitanya. Suddha Chaitanya means pure awareness. From, in, in Vedanta, pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. In Sankhya, they refer to Purusha as pure awareness, but what they mean by pure awareness is mere awareness. 
they don't, the Vedantic meaning of pure awareness is awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. So it, it, in that sense, we are, our real nature is pure awareness. We are not aware of anything other than ourself. Um, but as ego, we are always aware of things other than ourselves. So the two defining characteristics of ego is firstly, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. Secondly, we're aware of other things. But we're aware of other things but only because we're aware I am this body. So that is the, the, the root error is this Dehatma Bhava, Dehatma Buddhi, I am this body uh, identification. Since ego, so what we actually are is not this body. So ego is a false awareness. It's an awareness of ourself as something other than what we actually are. So since ego is a false awareness of ourself, how can we get rid of it? The only way to remove a false awareness is by correct awareness. If you, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, the only way to free yourself from, that, from the fear caused by that snake is to see what it actually is. If you look at it carefully enough, you see, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. So the, the wrong knowledge, this is a snake, is removed only by the correct knowledge, this is a rope. Um, likewise, only uh, to remove this false awareness, I am this body, it can be removed only by the correct awareness, I am I. That's why Bhagavan often talked about I am I. But unfortunately, it's been mistranslated into English as I hyphen I. That is not what Bhagavan meant. I, I hyphen I doesn't really mean anything. Nan nan or aham aham means I am I. Because in Tamil and Sanskrit, you don't need to say am. It's understood. If you say uh, Shiva hum, there's no uh, I. Shiva hum means Shiva aham. Where's the am? It's implied there. Uh, likewise, um, deham naham, the, this body is not I. Uh, the, the is is not there, it's understood. So in, in, all, in both Tamil and Sanskrit and in many other languages, when you're saying A is B, it's sufficient just to say A, B. The is is understood there. The copula, as it's called, the, the, uh, linking the, the, the subject with the subject complement is understood. So in Tamil, nanit deham, I this body, means I am this body. Nana, I who, means I am who, who am I? So nan nan means I am I. Uh, likewise, in Sanskrit, ahamaham means I am I. That's our true identity. So only by that, by being aware of ourself as ourself alone, as I alone, can we remove the false identification, I am this body. So how to eradicate ego? Only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. What we actually are is only I, nothing other than I. So it, it's only in order to know ourselves as I and I alone, we need to turn our attention back within, because so long as our attention is going outwards, we're aware of things other than ourselves. Being, since other things appear only in the view of ego, being aware of things other than ourselves is feeding and nourishing ego. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhanapadu, he describes ego as uh, uruvatra pei. Uruvatra means formless. Why is it formless? Because it's got no form of its own. Why is it pay? Pay means 
it usually be translated as phantom, but actually pay means evil spirit, but it amounts to much the same thing. It's, a, it's an evil spirit or a phantom because it has no substance of its own. It borrows its substance, that is, its existence and its awareness, it borrows from Satchit. It borrows its form from a body, but it is neither this nor that. So ego doesn't actually exist at all. It is that chit-jada-granti, that not formed by the entanglement of chit and and jada. Chit me, means sat-chit, the pure awareness I am, the, the existence awareness. Jada means the body. When these two are conflated, the resulting not is called ego. So this ego is the... Is the is neither the body nor is it satchit. It's a it's a conflation of the two. Um, so Bhagavan says in that verse, uh, uh, urupatri undam, grasping form, it comes into existence. Because without grasping a form, ego can, doesn't exist at all. It's got no separate existence of its own. When it doesn't grasp a form, it remains as satchit. When it rises, ego it immediately grasps a form. That doesn't mean that the form exists there before it rises. Because as he says in the next verse, verse 26, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. So but this body doesn't exist independent of ego. So as soon as we rise as ego, we project and identify a body as I. And then he says, Urupatri Nikkam, grasping form, it stands. That means we... So long as we stand as ego, so long as we endure as ego, we continue to grasp this body as I. So without holding on to this body as I, we cannot either come into existence or stand as ego. And then he says, Uru Patri Undu Mika Ongum. That means grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. There, whereas the first two form in the first two sentences, or clauses, he's talking about, the form he's talking about is the body. In this third sentence, he's talking about the myriad of forms that appear as soon as we take ourselves to be this body. So by attending to forms, by attending to phenomena, anything other than ourself, ego uh, 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 is fed and flourishes. Uh, that is, undu means it, it is uh, uh, feeding, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. So the food that keeps, e that nourishes and sustains ego is attention to forms. In other words, attention to things other than itself. Because ego is a formless phantom. So all the forms that it attends to are things other than itself. So it's by attending to things other than itself that it, it, uh, ego is nourished. And then he says, Leaving form, uruvittu uh, urupatram. Leaving form, it grasps form. That is, ego cannot remain for a moment without grasping form. But then the most important sentence of all, possibly the most important sentence in all of Bhagavan's teaching, of course, he says it in so many ways, in so many places, but he puts it particularly clearly in verse 25 of Uludnabdu. Teidinal otum pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. If sought, is, is a rather poor English translation of Teidinal. Teidinal is a, it's not actually a passive verb. It is what is called middle voice. It's neither active nor passive, but somewhere in between. It, Tamil is, is a, that is in Tamil, there's a, an, a, 
uh, it's possible in Tamil to talk in a very impersonal way without you because of the, the widespread use of the middle voice in Tamil, it's possible to talk um, without an explicit subject. So Bhagavan often when he talked, when he was telling any incident about his life or anything about himself, he would actually not be using the pronoun I. But in order to make it intelligible in English, those who recorded it recorded as if Bhagavan was saying I. Because in Tamil, it's possible to talk in an impersonal way. So Tedinal simply means if seek. It, it means that much. So what is seeking and what is sought is not specified there. But the implication is if ego seeks itself, in, in other words, if ego investigates itself to see what it is, otum pidicum. Otum means uh, running. Pidicum means grasping. Like in English, take flight means you run run away. Uh, it, it means exactly the same. So ego takes flight. That means ego runs away. Ego disappears as soon as you try and look for it. You look so long as we're looking outside at other things, we seem to be ego. When we turn our attention back within to uh, to see this ego, there's no such thing as ego to be found. Has anyone ever seen this ego? No, because it's a formless phantom. It's got no form of its own. So when we look within, it, what he means by it takes flight is it subsides and it dissolves back into its source. So if we had sufficient love to look at ourselves keenly enough, we would thereby subside and dissolve back into our source, and then we would see ourselves as pure awareness, which is what we actually are. If we saw us, if we as egos see ourselves as pure awareness, as soon as we see ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. That is how ego is annihilated. So all that Bhagavan has taught us about ego and the nature of ego is extremely important. What he has revealed in verse 25 of Uludunapadu and what he refers to in so many other verses of Uludunapadu and in so many of his answers to people's questions. This is a, this is a unique um, revelation that I don't believe has ever been made so clear and so explicit in any of the uh, scriptures of the world. The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself. In other words, by looking outward, by looking away from itself. But it will subside and dissolve back into its source simply by turning its attention back on itself. Simply by looking within to see who am I, this ego will subside and vanish. Bhagavan used to give so many analogies to um, illustrate this. He told the story of uh, the, the Marple Torum, the bridegroom's friend. That is, um, I'll just briefly tell the story. That is, in old days in India, marriages were elaborate affairs. They used to go on for five days. So the, uh, generally, the marriage would be held in the bridegroom's village. So the, the bride and the bride's, sorry, the, sorry, in the, in the bride's village, the marriage would be held. So the bridegroom and the bridegroom's party would come from their village to the bride's village, and there the marriage would be held, five-day celebration. So a, a wayfarer was once walking through a village and he saw a marriage party approaching the village. 
since he was feeling a bit hungry, because he was just um, wandering vagabond, he thought, ah, this is a very good opportunity. So he went and he welcomed the, bri the bridegroom's party and said, come, 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 uh, bring, bring all your things. And then he went into the bride's house and he said, we've all arrived now, where are we to put the things? And so the, the bride's party thought he belonged to the bridegroom's party and the bridegroom's party thought he belonged to the bride's party. So he, he had a very nice time for five days. He was feasting sumptuously. He was bossing over people, giving directions um, to both parties. Um, and the bride's party was very respectful to him because they thought he's there arranging everything on behalf of the bridegroom's party. And the bridegroom's party thought he's very helpful. He's he's the person deputed by the bride's party to help us. So he was having a great time. When the when the marriage was over, most of the guests left and only the very close relatives remained. So they began talking among themselves. Who was this person? Who is that person? And then the, one of the parties asked, who was that very helpful young man? And he said, no, no, he's nothing to do with us. And we thought he would belong to your party. No, no, he's nothing to do with us. We thought he belonged to your party. That is, ego doesn't belong to body or to Satchit. But it poses between the two, linking the two together. So as soon as this fellow heard from the beginning, as soon as this in, investigation about his identity uh, began, he ran away. He disappeared. Likewise, ego. It, ego flourishes very well until we begin to investigate what it is. Who am I? Then this ego will run away. That's one story Bhagavan told. Another nice story Bhagavan told. Uh, he told so many stories to illustrate this, but one of the nice stories he told was of a sadhu. The, the sadhu lived in a mandapam, in a in a um, in some temple hall, but was outside the village. Um, perhaps like some of the mandapams around going around the Giri Parakrama road, we can imagine. And he used to go into the village every day to beg his food once a day. So he would he would come back. He would he would eat half of the food he had begged in the evening before going to bed. He would then go to bed. And in the morning when he got up, he would have remaining food for breakfast. One day when he woke up, his begging bowl was empty. So he thought, oh, ho, what's happened? Someone's come and taken my food. So he that night he decided I should be vigilant so that nobody comes and takes my food. So he lay there as if he was asleep, but waiting for to see who the thief was. But he fell asleep. Uh, and when he woke up, he found his food was gone. So the next night he tried to be more vigilant. And this went on for a few nights. And finally he was he was alert enough. And he he was lying there, almost falling asleep, when he suddenly heard slurp, slurp, slurp. He opened his eyes, and there was a dog licking the bowl, licking the food from the bowl. So he at once looked up, and the dog ran away. Then he understood, oh, oh it's this dog, so I must be more vigilant. So the next night, he was more vigilant. He was looking. And when the dog came to, near the entrance of the mandapum, it looked inside. The dog saw him looking. So the dog kept the distance. And uh, the next night the dog came and it kept, it didn't even come so far. It came a little further away. It was looking to see, is he looking? Is he not looking? Then when it saw he was looking, it slipped away. Um, 
And each night the dog was getting further away and finally the dog stopped coming. Likewise with ego. The more we attend to ego, the more it will retreat and retreat and retreat. And finally, it will not come back and trouble us. So what Bhagavan taught us about the nature of ego is an invaluable clue. It in fact explains the whole of Vedanta. But ego comes into existence only because we look out. I mean, that we seem to be ego only by because we're looking outwards. If we look back at ourselves, ego will disappear. So this is an invaluable practical clue that Bhagavan has given us. This is possibly the most valuable secret in the whole world. I mean, the most. This is the this is the key to the, how to free ourselves from ego, how to attain liberation. This is the key, has been explained by Bhagavan more clearly than by in any other uh, text or by any other sage. It's never been so clearly explained because Bhagavan came for one purpose and one purpose alone, to show us the means to eradicate ego. And of course, he, it's, he doesn't just show us. He is doing his work because he's ever existing in our heart, slowly, slowly, uh, rectifying our mind, purifying our mind, rooting out the vasanas. Um, uh, so he's doing his part, but we have to cooperate by following the, the teachings that he's given us to turn within. So it is for a very, very good reason Bhagavan has talked so much about ego. All of Bhagavan's teachings, whatever Bhagavan has taught us, it all has practical implication. If we if we don't understand the practical implication of what Bhagavan has taught us, we haven't understood his teachings at all. He, Bhagavan didn't teach anything unnecessarily. And he, he made it clear, merely learning all this, we, you can study uh, Vedanta philosophy, you can study Advaita, you can study all the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, the commentaries on them, and so many other texts and everything. You can study these things for lifetimes, but you will not find out who you are until you turn your attention within to see who am I. That is what, that is the, so Bhagavan's teachings is all about, Bhagavan wasn't, in for Bhagavan philosophy, was a means to an end. It wasn't an end in itself. So Bhagavan wasn't interested in philosophy for its own sake, for its practical value. So the philosophy Bhagavan taught us is wholly practical. So it is for a very, very good reason. Everything that Bhagavan taught us, he taught us for a good reason. And the, the essence of all that he taught us is that so long as we allow our attention to continue going outwards, we are nourishing and sustaining this ego. The only way to get rid of this ego, the only way to surrender this ego, is to turn our attention back within to see who am I. I hope that adequately answers that question. <laughs> that question. Yes, thank you so much, Michael. Right. Uh, the next question is from Elena. Yes. Uh Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you very much for all your talks and for today's talk. Um, I have um, actually two questions. They are uh, quite different. Uh, and um, the first is, uh, you mentioned today, uh, again, this uh, uh, thing that uh, when we rise as ego, uh, vasanas uh, start walking like uh, endless waves. Yes. Um, and 
of course, as I understand, it is because we see the world. I mean, the, 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 the very fact that we see the world uh, means that uh, all these um, vasanas uh, have been switched on. Yes. They immediately started walking. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, whether, for example, when we want to, when we uh, do some things that we uh, consider to be innocent things, like, for example, when you just to to relax, for example, you watch some video or you do something. Yes. Uh, and you think that it is like some something like um, I mean some norm something normal and uh, it doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean that you are interested deeply in something yeah but as I understand it means anyway that uh, since we see the world whatever we see whatever we do it actually means that this is how vasanas work yes. right Actually, this is what I... Uh, okay, so you answered already, yes. And, uh, and yeah, can, can I say something about that? <laughs> that is, we... Bhagavan is very, very practical. Bhagavan doesn't ask us to try and force things. So Bhagavan's path is a gentle path. We, we cannot overcome our vasanas by fighting them. We cannot overcome them by forcibly trying to deny them. What we need to do is to gradually wean our mind off its vasanas. So why do we watch television? Why do we watch films? Why do we, why do, we do any of these things? It's because we still have interest in these things. So um, the... One of the ways that people used to, what used to be popular in the past is if you want to be spiritual, you have to renounce the world. You have to give up all worldly activities. You have to become a, a sannyasi or uh, become a monk or a nun or whatever. And you, you have to live a life of, of renunciation. Bhagavan never recommended this life of outward renunciation. He wasn't, contrary to what some people have said, Bhagavan wasn't opposed to external renunciation. What Bhagavan said about external renunciation, just like marriage, marriage, whether you're to be married and have children or not, is determined by prarabdha. Likewise with uh, sannyasa. If it's your destiny to be a sannyasi, you'll be a sannyasi. If it's not your destiny, you won't be. But just because you're a sannyasi doesn't make you any more fit to follow the spiritual path than a grahasta. That's why Bhagavan often used to say, the grahasta who does not feel I am a grahasta is a better sannyasi than the sannyasi who thinks I am a sannyasi. So it, the renunciation that Bhagavan wanted, the, the Bhagavan expected of us is inward renunciation. The outward renunciation really doesn't make much difference. If it will be favorable for us to live a life of outward renunciation, such a prarabdha will be allotted to us. If it's beneficial for us to, to, to be married and to have 10 children and to work all our life away, that is what is, whatever is given to us is what is the most favorable for our present state of, for our present stage of spiritual development. So the, uh, it's not the outward thing that is required, it's inward renunciation. And inward renunciation can only be achieved gradually. There is a verse in the Bhagavad Gita in which Krishna begins, Sane, Sane, 
Sane Sane means slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually. Um, the first two lines of that verse mean slowly, slowly withdrawing the mind from external things and making it steady. And the last two lines are Atma Samstam Manakritva. Fix the mind in yourself. Do not think of anything else whatsoever. That is um, chapter 6, verse 25, if I remember correctly. Bhagavan translated that verse into Tamil in Bhagavad Gita Saram. I think it's verse 27 in, verse, in Bhagavad Gita Saram. In, uh, in, he translated Sane Sane as Mella Mella. Mella Mella means uh, little by little, gently, gently, softly, softly, quietly, quietly. So we, we cannot force the mind. If we try and force the mind, it will just produce a, an adverse reaction. So slowly, slowly, we are trying to wean the mind off its vishaya vasanas. How do we do this? As as Krishna says, atma samstam mana kritva, or Bhagavan translated that as uh, atma vil, uh, oh, atma vil fixing the mind in, in oneself. Uh, um, do not think of anything else whatsoever, Bhagavan says. Do not think of anything else whatsoever. So, but we cannot give up thinking of other things all at once because we we still have too much liking to continue thinking of other things. So slowly, 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 we have to cultivate this practice of whenever we notice our attention goes outwards, we try and bring it back to ourselves. In this way, by by uh, patient and steady perseverance, we gently, gently, gradually wean the mind off its tasting going outward and cultivate the taste to go within. So this is the path that Bhagavan has taught us. It's the path of gently uh, withdrawing our mind from other things, cultivating the love to attend to ourselves. So we these are not things that we can force. We just have to we have to just persevere uh, and um, in following in in trying to put this his teachings into practice. That will lead us. Um, that 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 will lead us to to the point where these vasanas drop off more and more and more. The vishaya vasanas drop off, and the sat vasana gets strengthened. I don't know whether that was helpful, relevant to what you yes, were saying, yes. but I just wanted to. Yes, yes, of course, of course, everything that you say is helpful because you uh, uh, just uh, pointing at uh, really very important things. But what I wanted to say that also that uh, we cannot consider anything that we can see in the world actually like something innocent. I, I, I mean that even. The very fact that you that when you when you see the world, it still means that you see it wrongly. Let's say yes. right. So I yes. mean that even, even even if you think that you are not interested or something that you just look at something and you see, for example, you 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 look at something or whatever thing it is, and you just, uh, for example, think that this is the this thing. Yes. But it is not actually. I mean yes. that. Uh, I mean it. It doesn't mean. It, it means that you are still interested. It's like yes. somehow uh, when you see the world, you are just I, I, the very fact that you see the world means that you are interested in the in the world. 
the very fact that our attention, the very fact that we're aware of anything other than ourselves, means that our attention has gone outwards, and it's gone outwards under the sway of Vishaya Vasanas. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, my te- second question, some, some, somehow uh, I notice now that uh, it has some relation even with first, but actually I didn't think about this before. Uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, it's just just uh, uh, to ask you to clarify, I mean, to explain why it happened like this and what does it mean? And uh, um, I mean, that uh, when Kahavan was I mean, the passing away and at last moment, as if this story is true, which I think it is true, as, as far as I remember, uh, that this is like effect. Uh, that um, uh, last words was uh, uh, where that uh, uh, whether you uh, he asked whether they fed or whether they were going to fe- to feed uh, the peacock. Yes. Right. So I mean that. Uh, it's interesting that uh, as if he was like, it was something really important because still it is this world and why, why he was, it's so interesting. I mean, that somehow it's like. That is, Bhagavan is not aware of the world at all. Yes. Bhagavan is pure awareness. But mm-hmm. because as, as he explained to us, because we take ourselves to be a body, we see him as a body. And as the body, he is a, he is he is the he's the perfect person. That is, insofar yes. as he seems to be a person, he is yes, perfect yes. in every way. So he had so much love and compassion for all who came to him. I mean, for not for all, only who came to him, for all jivas. So he, when the, when he dis, accidentally disturbed the hornet's nest, he allowed them to sting his thigh. So he was concerned for the peacocks. They they will be hungry. Have they been fed? So it it is. To the end, he was mm-hmm. the embodiment of kindness and yes. love to all. And his kindness and love was equal to everyone. Among mm-hmm. humans, he was equally kind to the to the Maharajas or Maharanis who came as he was to the peasants. He was equally um, d- d- kind to the illiterate peasant as he was to learned scholars. So his love was equal to all. He was also equally kind, both to the good and to the bad, to all types of people. All types of people, just because people happen to be in Bhagavan's presence, doesn't mean they're good. There are lots of all sorts of people, of of not so good people were there. Some of them were, uh, well, all sorts of things happen, all types. But Bhagavan's love is equal to all. Why? Because he doesn't see us as separate individuals. He sees us as himself, and so he loves us as himself. So Bhagavan's love is equal to all. Yes, by the way, it's interesting also point of view, uh, actually. Yes, that uh, it is like, um, it was like uh, uh, one of the interpretations, um, uh, of Mm. course, it's like act of showing again this like, Accepting and love for everything. Yeah. And at that last moment, his body is is in excruciating pain, dying of cancer. Yes, but yes. for in his view, that body is no more I 
when the peacocks arrive, when anything else is arrived, because in his view, he alone exists. So if anything else, if, if, if at all there's such a thing as a peacock, if at all there's such a thing as a, a person or a dog or a cat or a, a, a tiger or a snake or a scorpion or a, um, or a hornet, they're all only I. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I also was thinking about this, but I just somehow uh, thought that um, it's also like, uh, th that's great that I, I heard from you what you said. It's, yes, yeah. you explained everything. And also I wanted to say that even before uh, I learned about these teachings, uh, I also heard that uh, it is like a common uh, wisdom that it is better to be uh, better to somehow uh, how how to uh, to say uh, to to give up with this world being grihast right it's uh, this yeah. the world yes yeah. then to to be a monk but of course you correctly said that it depends on, on your prarabha anyway yes, yes. Uh, but I mean that anyway it's somehow it considers to be uh, the best thing when you being like in the middle of the world you you somehow uh, are able to uh, just understand what yes. whatever is best for us is the, the situation in which we now find ourselves is what is best for us Yes, yes. Because our whole prarabdha is allotted by him for our spiritual, uh, our spiritual welfare, for our ongoing spiritual development. So whatever happens is for good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. as they say in Tamil, all is only for good. Great. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Right. Right. Thank you. Right. Thank you. The next question. The new generation who, who have grown up taking selfies and always capturing moments and posting on social media, practically how to watch this ego 24-7. We came to a position where without showing others how I live, I believe I don't live. Yep, that is um, whatever generation we're uh, we we are born in whatever there will it will always seem to us that the world is pulling our mind outside but but we have our life everyone's life everyone faces problems in their life so i've got to attend to these i've got to pay the rent i've got to pay the bills i've got to I've got to appear on social media. I've got to be noticed by my friends. I've got to post on social media. I've got to post this selfie. All this, it may seem that the world is compelling us to attend to it, but the world is not compelling us. It is our own vasanas that are compelling us. So whether, whether we feel peer pressure to post selfies on, the, on social media or whether we feel pressure to pay the bills or whatever it is, it is not the external world that is putting pressure on us. It is our own vasanas that are putting pressure on us to go outward. So it is, we are always free either to uh, allow, yield ourselves to the vasanas. In other words, allow ourselves to be swayed by the vasanas or not allow ourselves to be swayed. So if we happen to be young people born in this generation, there will seem to be strong pressure on us to post selfies on social media or whatever. 
But it's we who, because that is we who feel the inclination, oh yes, to, to, in order to be popular among my friends, in order to feel that I exist, I must post the pictures on social media. It's, it seems to be external pressure, but actually it's internal pressure. What does it matter whether we post on social media or not? It, is the world going to come to an end if we don't pay on social media? No, it's, it's we feel we want to be popular among our peers. So we want to, um, to do like everyone else, to post pictures on social media or to play video games or whatever it may be. Peer pressure is, is not a new phenomenon. It has been there since time immemorial. In the past, the peer pressure may have been to, to be very manly, to be a warrior, to fight and to, to engage in warfare. So they're always in any different societies bring different types of pressure on us. Different positions in society bring different pressures on us. If you're born in a poor family, there'll be different pressures than if you're born in a big in a rich family. All these so there's so many different pressures, but Ultimately, the pressures are, it's only seemingly that the external world is pressing us. The reason we feel the pressure from the external world is because we, we want to be accepted in, among our peer circle, among the circle of our peers, among the, our, um, our uh, associates and so on. We want to be accepted. So we feel we have to post selfies or to... Um, in the past, they say we may have had to show ourselves to be very brave warrior or something. It's always there. It's nothing new in this generation. It may take different forms, but peer pressure will always be there. But the problem is not from outside. The problem is us. We want to, we want to please our peers. We want to. Um, it's our desire to be uh, recognized by our peers. That is where the problem lies. So, uh, uh, Michael, uh, so recently what happened is I just uh, went for a, you know, uh, sightseeing of birds. So yes. I have a camera and I thought I'll be with nature. Then uh, that one hour I spent time with nature and I'm taking uh, pictures of uh, beautiful uh, birds and all. But once I come out, uh, come back to home, then immediately that mind is so cunning, it will say, post it on some social media. So what is happening, what I'm observing is, until I show to everyone that uh, I saw some beautiful nature or, or I did, I celebrated a festival, uh, generation, current generation, what is happening is, uh, if I don't show, then I, I, I feel inside that it's, uh, I'm not enjoying life. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this, this is Maya. Yes. This is Maya. Maya. Maya takes any number of different forms, but it's all the same Maya. And the root of that Maya is ego. Mm. Who is the I who wants to feel, um, who wants to be recognized by um, the, the, the peers? That is the problem. If we analyze any problem we face in life, we can. If we analyze it correctly, it all comes down to the one root problem: ego. Root. 
Ego, That's why ego. Donovan teachings are all about ego. Why should we feel? I want to feel that I live. I want to feel I exist. Why? Why? Why should I fear to feel that I am nobody? Actually, to be nobody is the greatest of blessings. To feel that I am nobody, it, it's much better to feel I am nobody than I am somebody. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's true. See, if you see a lot of people. they go sat to a peaceful place they'll spend at least fraction of second but one now they'll post selfies that okay i'm in this peaceful place yes yes guys yes. please believe me i'm please believe me i'm enjoying i'm relaxing so yes, that... yes 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 <laughs> so they're not really peaceful because the mind is agitating them thinking i had to post this on social media so it's no peace at all <laughs> but uh, wonderful uh, example of uh, you know watching that dog and you know uh, bhagwan going for that marriage uninvited and uh, yes. so i mean watching is the only uh, solution watching the, the ego only solution is the only solution thanks thank you michael thanks watch but chaitanya <laughs> your your watch name it so points you back to what you actually are Sudhya Chaitanya. Today you told right about Purna, Purna, completeness. So there's a uh, I don't know. It's Brahmadarnya Kanya, Brahmadarnya Upanishad. They said yeah. Purna Mada, Purna Midam, yes. Purna Purna Mudachchate. Yes, yes. Purnasya yes. Purna Mada ya Purna Meva Vasishchate, which means from that completeness, uh, Purna Mada means that is complete. Purna Mida, that is this is complete. Yeah. From that completeness, this completeness came. Once uh, it is removed, the remaining is also completeness. Yes, so yes, yes. Uh, all is only pona, but all appears to be kanda. All appears to be split because of our rising as ego. It's hmm. the rising of ego that seems to split for one infinite, indivisible whole into all these many parts. So Bhagavan's teachings are always stressing this. But one problem is, in whose view do all problems exist? In the view of ego. So ego is the root of all problems. Get rid of ego, and everything is solved. Correct. Which is a which is a battle. Which is like yes. Kurukshetra. Yes. Yes. One. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so you this, so this ego is porna, but when it comes out. it seems to create all this fragmentation if we look back within to see what we actually are we will see but we are porna and all the fragmentation will uh, disappear because the fragmentation is only in the view of ego right <laughs> thank you for the wisdom michael thank you it's not my wisdom it's bhagwan's wisdom don't blame me bhagwan's i'm innocent bhagwan's wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just relaying what bhagwan is saying yeah you are reflecting yeah thanks <laughs> right the next question is in fact it's not a question uh, it's a uh, dear michael i just wanted to share a thought one finds it extremely beneficial to reflect on verse 7 of uh, of arunachal akshamana malai along with this verse thank you verse uh, verse 7 uh, of uh, navamani malai oh navamani malai navamani malai oh yes 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 sorry sorry yes definitely verse 7 of navamani malai where bhagavan says uh, um anamalai adiyane andabandre abudal that 
the, the, the very day that you took charge of me, that is anda, anda is a, is a participle form of this verb al. So the very day you took charge of me, you took possession of my body and soul. In other words, you, you took, took me completely. Anamalaya DNA, anda vandre, abudal, kondai, is there any um, kure? Kure means any deficiency, anything lacking, any grievance for me. That is, when you've taken everything, what grievance is there? There cannot be any grievance. Then he says, kureyum gunamum niyalal, enenivatre. That is, uh, um, that sentence he's, He's packed a lot into that sentence. It has two, when he says, kureum gunamum niyalal, that implies um, that this kure, the, the deficiencies, and the kureum uh, gunamum, the good qualities, they do not exist apart from you. And niyalal enne I do not think of them, but only of you. So that niyalal, it, it it can be interpreted with the first half of a sentence and the second half of a sentence. I they they do not exist apart from you. Therefore, I do not think of them, but of you alone. In other words, we shouldn't we shouldn't be concerned about our good or bad qualities. If we want to be free of all bad qualities and eventually of all qualities altogether, we need to think of him alone. If we think of him alone. Then we are free of everything. Then he, he takes complete charge of us. Um, uh, my soul, my life, that is, Arunachari is the, is, the, is the soul of our soul, the life of our life. He is the, the, our innermost being. Uh, whatever you think, do that. That is, whatever be your will, you do that. Kanayundran. Uh, Kanay means O-I. I means like the, the physical organ of sight. Uh, but he referred, Kanay had two meanings, uh, two implications here. Uh, when you address someone as Kanay, that means you're addressing them as the most dear. They're dearer than your, as dear as your own eyes. It's the one implication. Another meaning, kan also means awareness. So he is our own awareness. He is the, uh, the, the light of awareness that gives light to our mind, enabling it to know other things. So we can take that kanai in two senses. Kanai undran karalinail kardal peruke Give me a flood, give me a surge, an ever-increasing surge of love for your, uh, of, of, for your two feet. So you do whatever you will. Only thing, give me love for you. Ever-increasing love. A flood of love. All-consuming love. So yes, it is very closely connected with this because it mentions, the, the, when it says kure, kure can also be taken as kutram. And the gunum it mentions. And it mentions uh, taking charge. So yes, it's very closely connected. All these verses, if we, if we go deep into them, they're all dealing with the same subject. And they're all very, very closely connected. Thank you, Michael. Right. Thank you. 
The next question is that um, after many years of following the path of Bhagwan, I feel it's difficult to focus and meditate continuously. Do I need to do japa or do some other practice to gain focus? Um, no, you don't. All you need to do is to continue trying your best to be self-attentive. We shouldn't be disheartened by the seeming difficulty. This path is not a difficult path. It, attending to ourselves is very easy. It seems difficult because we have so much liking to go outwards, so much liking to attend to other things. We're unwilling to let go of those other things in order to attend to ourselves. The most effective way to wean our mind off its vishaya vasanas, wean our mind off its liking to attend to other things, is to slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually, steadily but persistently attending to ourselves. Try again and again and again. Do not be disheartened. If we if we give up because of a lot of a little difficulty, we'll never succeed. It's the same with anything in life. You if you if you give up before you've started, you you will never succeed. If you want to succeed in something, whatever your type of undertaking, if you really if you're really sincere in wanting to achieve something, you must be ready to put in however much effort is necessary. So if we want to follow this path, we should try our best to follow this path. Even if it seems to us that we're not succeeding, the very fact that we are trying is itself um, means that we are progressing. Because that we are trying because we want to, because we're willing to give ourselves to Bhagavan. That's why we're trying to attend to ourselves. So he knows our willingness. So what is important is not whether we succeed or not, whether we try or not. Because as Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. And our trying is the sign of our bhakti, our genuine love. So if we really love to know and to be what we actually are, we don't have to go to do japa or any of these things. These are all roundabout ways. Once we've come to Bhagavan's path, we should persevere in trying our best to follow his path. And if we don't succeed, we cry out to him in prayer, Bhagavan, give me the strength, give me the love to do this. So otherwise, if we take to, if we think, oh, I'm not succeeding in this part, then, then let me do japa. Bhagavan once told a story. Um, uh, um, he, he, oh, so, so, oh, yes, so I, I can't remember the exact context, but I think it was something like this. Someone said to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, I've tried to follow your practice of, um, of, uh, of uh, Abhmavichara, but it's, I, I, I'm not able to do it. So is it okay if I do dhyana? And Bhagavan said, yes, okay, you can do dhyana. <laughs> After that person went away, Bhagavan explained to the people there, what am I to say? When he says he can't do Abhmavichara and he wants to do dhyana, I can't say, no, you have to do Abhmavichara. So I say, if he wants to do dhyana, okay, let him do dhyana. But what will happen? He will do dhyana for some time, and then he'll come to me and say, Bhagavan, I'm not able to do this dhyana, it's too difficult, can I do japa? And I will have to say yes. And after some time, he'll come to me and he'll say, Bhagavan, this japa is too difficult, can I do puja? If you, if, 
if someone wants to follow this path, they will follow this path however difficult it may be. If you want to achieve something in life, you will not be put off by the difficulty. If you're put off by a little bit of difficulty, that means you don't really want to achieve it. So if you if you give up because of a few obstacles on the way, you you're not really sincere. So if we want to to, to gain the maximum benefit, we have had the great good fortune in our life of having Bhagavan come into our life, of learning about his teachings, learning about this direct and simple path. So we should try our best to apply this to the best of our ability and not think about other um, otherwise we will we we won't that is if we give up because of difficulty we will never succeed doesn't matter how difficult it is doesn't matter how it is not difficult according to bhagavan it's the easiest of all paths it truly is it seems difficult because of our uh, our taste to go outwards. But how will doing Japa uh, solve that? It will solve it only in a very roundabout way. Bhagavan used to say, even a little effort made in this path is worth years of effort made in any other path. So let us, let us rather than frittering our effort away on following other paths, which we will also find difficult. If you, if you do Japa, you will also find your mind will be wandering away to other things. If your mind wanders away when you do try to attend to yourself, it will equally wander away if you try and meditate or if you try and do Japa or if you try and do Puja. That's the, it's the nature of the mind to wander. Let's not be uh, perturbed by this mind. This 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 wandering mind it cannot wander without being aware i am so let us hold on to that awareness i am and slowly slowly its wandering nature will subside and i am alone will remain so if i were to say to you yes okay if you find this difficult then do japa i would be doing a disservice to you if you if you don't want to listen to me by all means do japa but i can only tell you what Bhagavan has taught us, but this is the this is an eightinamutamam, as he says in verse six of um verse eight of Upadeshundia. An eightinamutam means the best among all. That is among all the means to purify the mind. Better than puja is japa. Better than japa is dhyana. Better than meditating dhyana on God as something other than ourselves. Meditating on him as ourself is the best among all. That means it's the most efficacious means to purify the mind and thereby free it from the vasanas, but incline it to go outwards. So we have let us not waste this great opportunity we have in having Bhagavan in our life. We we don't know how, how tremendously fortunate we are to have Bhagavan and his teachings. These are such, this is such a great blessing we have we have got in our life. So let us not waste it thinking that we, oh, I can't do this, let me do something else instead. That is that that is that is not being faithful to Bhagavan. That is not truly honestly following the path that he's shown us. Thank you, Michael. Right, right. Well, thanks to Bhagavan. It's Bhagavan. I'm just, I'm just trying to relay what Bhagavan has taught us.
why Bhagavan gave so much importance to this path? Because this is the direct path. All other things are very roundabout and very slow. When, when, you, when you can fly from um, New York to Chennai and then get a fast car to, from Chennai to, um, to, uh, to uh, Tiruvannamalai, why should you begin starting trying to swim across the Atlantic Ocean in order to get there? Don't waste your time. Take the quickest route possible. Bhagavan has given us the quickest route. So why should we, when the jet plane is available, why to take a bullet cart? Nice example. Thanks, Michael. Um, the next question is, uh, could you explain the difference between Ajatavad, the theory of non-causality, and Drishti Srishtivad? Yes. Um, Bada means it is a contention, it's a point of view. But even to call it a Bada is not really doing justice to it. That is, Ajata is the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is that what is alone is as it is, and that nothing has ever happened, nothing has ever come into existence, no ego has ever risen, no world has ever appeared. That is the ultimate truth. But that seems to be contrary to our experience. Our experience now is that we have risen as ego and consequently we are seeing the world. So though Bhagavan told us that Ajata is the ultimate truth, he said Ajata is not a teaching because it, there's no need to teach Ajata. In Ajata, there is nothing. There's only just the one, the one that alone actually exists. There's no one to teach, no one to be taught, and there's nothing to teach. There is just what is. So Ajata is not a teaching. We are told by Bhagavan and by other sages like Gautama and so on that this is the ultimate truth. But our present experience is that we, we have risen as ego, we seem to be this body, and we are consequently aware of this world. So the teachings have to begin. Well, that is... If Bhagavan were to give us a teaching, but re if Bhagavan refused to accept the problem, how can his how could his teachings help us? If you go to a doctor with um, some serious illness, if you go to a doctor with cancer, and if a doctor says, "Oh no, no, you're fine. There's no cancer. There's nothing. You go home and be," that would be he'd be a useless doctor. The doctor has to recognize what the problem is. So Bhagavan is the supreme spiritual doctor. He recognizes what the problem is. He, whereas whereas ordinary doctors will treat the symptoms. They'll say, you need to live a virtuous life. Don't do sin. If you do sin, you'll go to hell. Live a virtuous life and you'll go to heaven. This is just treating the symptoms. Bhagavan is the, is the ultimate doctor. So he goes to the ultimate root cause of all the problems. That is ego. Why is there sin? Because we have risen as ego, the sinner. So or whatever prob the problem may be, it all comes back to ego. So Bhagavan has died. Firstly, he diagnoses what is the disease? What is the root cause of the disease? It is ego. Then what is the solution? How to get rid of this ego? How to get rid of the root cause? It is Atma Vichara. So 
when he acknowledges the existence of ego, he's acknowledging in the view of ego, this world seems to exist. So, uh, it, but, but Advaita teaches us that the ultimate truth is ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So, if there's one only without a second, why do we see all these many things? Uh, Advaita tells us it's all vivata, it's all just an illusory appearance. An illusory appearance, Bhagavan asks us, if it's an illusory appearance, then to whom does it appear? You can't have an appearance without it appearing to something. Some, nothing can seem to exist except in the view of something in whose view it seems to exist. So Bhagavan goes back to the root. He says, yes, it's an illusory appearance. So to whom does it appear? It appears to you. So investigate this ego to whom all this appears. According to Drishti Shrishti Vada, that, that is, there are two ways of explaining this. We can either say all this existed and then we appeared on the scene and not now seeing it. That is, most philosophies, all of science, most religions are based on that. That is called Shrishti Drishti. They accept that the creation is there, whether it's been created by God or by a Big Bang or whatever it may be. They, they accept first there's the world, and then we appear on the scene, um, and we see it. That is the ordinary understanding, accepted by religion, by science, by most philosophers. Bhagavan says, why should you believe that anything exists independent of your perception of it? If this world exists independent of your perception of it, that means it has an independent reality. So, so long as we believe the world has its independent reality, then we can gain things from it. Yes, if I think happiness, I'll be happy if I have more money. I can go and try and get money from the world. If I think I'll be happy if I'm more learned, I can try and learn things. Uh, I can study whatever I'm interested in studying, or I can try and acquire, um, I can try and perfect my skill in some sport or in some profession, or um, or I can uh, seek um, uh, to be very a popular celebrity or to be a very powerful politician. There's so many things we can see if we take it all to be true. So taking the world to be true is, is, is a huge disadvantage on this path. So Bhagavan points out to us, why should you believe any of this is, uh, exists independent of your perception of it? How can you be sure that what you're experiencing now is any different to a dream? Is there anything that we can experience in this waking state that we could not experience in a dream? Obviously not. Whatever we can experience in waking state, we can also experience in a dream. So what evidence do we have that this is anything but a dream? So rather than assuming that the world exists independent of ourselves, it's surely better to assume but it appears in our view and has no independent existence. Because if we, if we assume it exists independent of us, then there's no Advaita. Advaita goes out the door because then there's us and the world. And even to say the world is an appearance and to say it exists independent of us makes no sense. So what Bhagavan teaches is pure Advaita. The pure Advaita is Drishti Shrishti Vada. Though many Advaitins will accept some form of Shrishti Shrishti Vada, that's a very, very 
diluted form of Advaita. But true Advaita, well, ultimate Advaita is Ajata. But Drishti Shishti is not contrary to Ajata in the sense that both Ajata and um, and Drishti uh, Shishti, they both agree, but what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. But the difference is, uh, according to Drishti Shishti Vada, all this appears. According to Ajata, it doesn't appear. So are they then, is there a disagreement? No, because as Bhagavan explained, all this appears only in the view of ego. Ego, we, so it's only when we rise as ego that all this seems to exist. Ego seems to exist because our attention is going outwards and we therefore take ourselves to be a body. If we investigate ourselves to see what we actually are, we will see that what we actually are is pure awareness. That, and, and pure awareness is immutable. So we have never been body. Sorry, we've never been ego. We've, we've never risen as ego and taken a body to be ourselves. So by investigating ourselves, we will find the non-existence of ego. Since everything else seemed to exist only in the view of ego, everything else is as non-existent as ego. So the ultimate truth, when we investigate ourselves and know ourselves as we actually are, we will know there never was any ego, never was any body, never was any world. That is ajata. So if we if we follow the, the logical conclusion of Drishti Shishti, it, all this exists only in the view of ego. And ego seems to exist only because it's looking outwards instead of looking back within. If ego looks back within to see who am I, ego will disappear, everything else will disappear, and what is alone will remain. And what is, is ever immutable. So ajata alone is the final truth. So ajata is the ultimate truth but not the teaching. The teaching accepts the seeming existence of ego and shows the way to get rid of this ego. I hope that's a clear distinction. People generally say, oh, Godapada taught, um, taught Ajata. Yes, he, he, Godapada did say ultimately, Nothing, none of this is none of this has ever come into existence. But actually, most of uh, Godapada's karika, Mandukya karika, he's he's emphasizing that this world is just a dream. Saying the world is a dream is not a jata. That is drishti shishti bada. Of course, in his day there wasn't a term. This term drishti shishti bada was coined only about four or five hundred years ago. Five hundred years ago, probably by a person called Shiva Prakasha Swamigal. But that doesn't mean, people think, oh, it's only since Shiva Prakasha uh, Swamigal that this, um, that this, uh, this strange idea of, of Drishti Shishti is there. No, it's not. It's very clearly there in Godapada's Karika. He's clearly emphasizing that there's no difference between waking and dream. So what he's actually teaching is Drishti Shishti. If you... If you apply Drishti Shishti in practice, you have to investigate who am I to whom all this appears. When you investigate who am I, this ego will disappear, everything else will disappear, and Ajata alone will remain. That's why he says the ultimate truth is Ajata. But he says that after saying all this is, uh, is no different to a dream.
So what he's teaching is exactly the same as, well, Bhagavan, of course, presents it in a much more practical way. Bhagavan goes much deeper. But uh, essentially what Gaudapada and Bhagavan are teaching is exactly the same. They're both teaching drishti-shishti and pointing to the ultimate reality, which is ajata. Um, as a spiritual practitioner, we try to practice virtue and practice love as much as possible. Michael, you have what we all need, an all-consuming love, which will prevent us from seeing others as separate from ourselves. How do we grow our love to get to this state? How are you doing this? Okay. Um, firstly, don't be deceived by appearances. I, I wish I had all-consuming love. If I had all-consuming love, I would have been consumed by that all-consuming love and I wouldn't be here talking now. So uh, we are all in the same boat. Where, uh, don't, just because I'm able to talk about these things doesn't mean I'm any better than anyone else. Uh, just, but Bhagavan has just given me this love for his teachings. And like all of you, I'm trying my best to put it into practice. Um, we we shouldn't that we need not be trying to be uh, kind and loving to others. If we are following Bhagavan's path of turning within, this ego will be subsiding more and more. The more ego subsides, the more it will be second nature to us to be kind and considerate and caring about others. So it's not, we shouldn't take that as our spiritual practice: being kind and caring and loving. That is a byproduct of following Bhagavan's path. If we're truly following Bhagavan's path, we'll automatically be kind and considerate and um, to the extent to which we're following his path. Um, all-consuming love is absolutely necessary. But we none of us have all-consuming love when we start on this path. We have, but we have a little love. We have to cultivate that love. How we cultivate that love is by trying our best to follow Bhagavan's path. The more we put what he taught into practice, however much we have to struggle, however difficult it seems to be, if we persevere in trying, that love will grow. Like anything else, if you, if you take interest in a subject, the more you take interest in it, the more you delve into it, the more interesting it becomes for you. It, it's true of anything. If you if you begin to be interested in football, the more you learn about football, the more interested you become. It's it's interest grows when our mind dwells on something. So the more we direct our mind to knowing who am I, direct it back within to try and see what we actually are, the more that love to know and to be what we actually are will increase. So it's the only way to succeed in this path is um, to practice more and more and more. The more we practice, the more ego will subside. The more ego subside, the less we, we still see ourselves as, yes, I'm this person and these are other people. But the distinction between ourselves and others becomes less, less marked, less, it, it seems less real, but because we are gradually, by going within, we are gradually separating ourselves from this body, so, from this person we take ourselves to be. So our identification with this person is, is, is growing weaker. So the distinction between self and other, me and 
and you, it 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 diminishes, it, it decreases, it that it becomes less, less but the boundaries begin to dissolve. It's very difficult to put it in words, but what I'm trying to say is we will feel we will automatically, the more we we follow this path and thereby subside back within, the more we will um the more we will naturally feel empathy for others. When we see others suffering, we will suffer to see them suffering. So we will do what we can to alleviate their suffering. We so kindness. All these things will come to the extent to which we follow this path. As Bhagavan says in that verse 13 of Ujnapdhyanabandham, that I um that I read earlier today when talking about um verse 19 of Akshramlai, all good qualities will come with the destruction of ego, with the destruction of a false awareness, I am this body. So to the extent to which we follow this path, to that extent ego is subsiding, and to that extent we, we will automatically be become kind, caring, considerate, patient, and so on. So the key to the key, we shouldn't think that we have to try to cultivate um to be a good person or to being doing good deeds what we need to do is to find out what we actually are if we find out what we actually are we are infinite goodness and then we we don't have to we don't have to try to be good so bhagavan's path is is the simple and direct path all good qualities will will come to us to the extent to which we follow this path In uh, remind me something in the Bible. I'm not very good in the Bible, but I remember Jesus said something like, "Seek ye the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you." So, if we seeking the kingdom of God, which is within us, uh, if we are following Bhagavan's path of seeking that that uh, seeking the reality that is, is always shining in our heart as our own being, all these virtues will automatically come to us. We need not go seeking the virtues. Let the virtues come seeking us. If we seek our own reality, the virtues will seek and find us. I hope that adequately answered that question. Yes, he does. Thank you. Yeah. The next question is, um, as we persevere in being self-attentive 100% of the time, if other thoughts come up in the mind for tasks that we must do in our day-to-day -day life, such as paying bills, booking travel, paying taxes, etc., should we attend to those or ignore them? If we are attending to ourselves, whatever needs to be done will be done. That is, Bhagavan has said, that is, what Bhagavan explained is, the actions of our mind, speech, and body are driven by two forces. They're driven by our will and by God. God makes us, do, makes us, us means our mind, speech, and body, do whatever actions are necessary for the prarabdha to unfold. So to be, when we are turning our attention within and holding on to our being, we won't be rising to act under the sway of our vasanas. Vasanas is the other thing. We won't be acting under our own will. So whatever actions are done by mind, speech, or body, if we are holding on to ourselves, 
firmly, will be actions driven by God. So if it's our destiny to pay the bills or to book our tickets or whatever it is, leave that burden to Bhagavan. He will make this mind, speech, and body do those things. If we are holding on to him in our heart, he will make the mind, body, speech, and body do all these things. Whether we are holding on to him or not, he will make us do whatever is necessary for the prarabdha to unfold. So if your bills are to be destined to be paid this month, you will pay them whether you whether I mean if, if it is if you're destined to take a flight or to take a train travel or whatever it is, and tickets have to be booked for that, you God will make Bhagavan will make you book those tickets, make your mind, speech, and body book those tickets, whether you attend to it or not. So that's why we need to pay very close attention to what Bhagavan says. Consider what he says in the 13th paragraph of Nana. He begins by saying, um, being atmanishta paran, being one who is firmly established as oneself, giving not, the, giving not even the least room to the rising of any thought other than atmachintana, Abhmachintana means self-attentiveness. So in other words, being so keenly self-attentive, but we give no room to the rising of any other thoughts, that alone is giving oneself to God. So he defines what is self-surrender there. It's holding on to ourselves so firmly, thereby being as we actually are, that is giving ourselves to God. Then in the next sentence he says, however much burden we place on God, he bears all of it. So what does that mean in that context? Even the burden of thinking, we can leave to him. So if he, we're leaving the burden of thinking, we can also leave the burden of paying the bills and, um, and booking the tickets or whatever else. We leave it all to him. He, if those things are to happen, they will happen whether we attend to them or not. Then in the next sentence, he says, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, Karyas in this context means everything that needs to happen, everything that ought to happen, that one Parameshwara Shakti, that one supreme divine power is making everything happen as it's meant to happen. So if, if it's meant to be the case that we book the tickets or that we pay the, the bills, we will, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do so whether we attend to it or not. So, since that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all these karyas, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? It's not actually necessary to do anything. The only thing that is necessary to do is to hold on to self-attentiveness. If we hold, Holding on to self-attentiveness is not a doing, it is a cessation of doing, because to the extent to which we hold on to ourselves, we thereby subside, and that the ego subsides, and all its activities subside along with it. So it's a, it's attending to ourselves is not a doing, but a cessation of doing. And then to drive home that point, in the next sentence, he gives the analogy of the, of the passenger on the train. When we're traveling in a train, we know the train is carrying all the burden. So why should we carry our small luggage on our head? If we carry it on our head, we'll be suffering. If we put it aside, we can travel happily. Whether we carry it on our head or put it aside, the train is anyway carrying it. So we should give up all thought about bills, about uh, tickets, about everything, cling only to ourselves. 
That is all that is required. Everything else will be taken care of by him. However much burden you place on God, he will take all of it. Bhagavan has, Bhagavan has given us a categorical assurance. So even the burden of paying your bills or booking your tickets, leave that burden to uh, Bhagavan. If it is to happen, it will surely happen, unfailingly. If it is not to happen, however much you try, it's not going to happen. Thank, the problem you, is we all lack faith in Bhagavan. We all read his teachings. We all say, oh, yes, it's very nice. But when it comes to practice, we don't yet have sufficient trust in his words. If we really trusted his words, we need not think anything because he's thinking everything for He will do all the thinking that is necessary for us. If we place the burden of thinking on him, he will think for us. But are we willing to do so? No, we're not. That's the problem. So we, that's why patient and persistent practice is necessary until we reach the point that we are finally willing to surrender ourselves to him. We are finally willing to cling so firmly to self-attentiveness that we give no room to rising up any other thought whatsoever. That is what we are working towards. That is our aim. We may not have achieved that yet, but that is what we should be aiming for. <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. Right. The last question is, what is the ego? How is the ego not the person? Thank you. Ego is the I but takes itself to be. I am this person. So Michael is not the ego. Ego is the I but says, I am Michael. Big difference, very important difference. If you take ego to be the person, then you completely misunderstood Bhagavan's teaching. You completely misunderstood uh, what this um, what Advaita is all about. Ego is not the person. Ego is not the body. The person means the five sheaths. The five sheaths are the, the physical body, the life that animates that body, the pranamaya kosha, the mind that uh, functions in that body, the intellect that drives that mind, and the will that drives the intellect. That is, all these, all these five sheaves are what make up the term a body. They, this is what makes up the person that we seem to be. Ego is not any of these five sheaves. Ego is that which takes all these five sheaves to be I. That is why Bhagavan says in verse twenty-four of Uludunapadu. Udal panch, sorry, um, Jada Udal Nanenadu, but Jada body does not say I. And when he says body, he's referring to all the five sheaths, because earlier in verse five he said, Udal Pancha Koza Udu, the body is a form composed of five sheaths. So when he talks about body, he's talking about all five sheaths. All the five sheaths are Jada, as he says in verse 22 of Upadesh India. Because they're jada, they're not aware, they cannot, that means they're not aware. So they can't be aware of themselves as I. So when he said the body, the jada body does not say I, he means it is not aware of itself as I. Why? Because it's not aware of itself. It's devoid of awareness. It's jada. Satchit udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. Satchit is a pure being, pure awareness. It just is as it is. It doesn't rise or do anything. In between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. That one th thing that rises, because it rises, it is not satchit. 
Because it's aware of itself as I, it is not the body. So it is neither the body, nor is it Satchit. Body here means person. So it's not the person, it's not Satchit. It's that which links the two together. It is, as Bhagavan says, it is Chichadagranti. That is the knot formed by the entanglement of Chit and Jada. Of course, Chit is never entangled with anything. But in the view of ego, the, that Satchit, which is what shines in us as I am, is conflated with this body, and we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. That that which is aware of itself as I am this body, that is ego. That is chitjaragranti, uh, bandham, bondage, uh, uh, jivan, the soul, the individual soul, the individuality, um, uh, nupame, the subtle body, ahande, ego, uh, Ichamsara, this samsara, that the whole of samsara is nothing but this ego. It all boils down to this ego, and it is mana, mind. So ego is not the body, not the person. It is not any of the five sheaths. It is that which identifies, takes itself to be all these five sheaths, but identifies all these five sheaths as I. So ego is neither satchit, nor the body, but it borrows properties of both of them and conflates them, and it dances around, getting itself into tr unnecessary trouble. So it's very, very important. If if the, if the ego were the person, then we can attend to the person. What is the person? The person consists of the body. So if I attend to body, am I investigating ego? No. If I attend to the prana, if I watch my breath or do pranayama or something, am I attending to ego? No. If I watch the mind, the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and so on, am I attending to ego? No. If I attend to the workings of the intellect, the reasoning and the, um, and the judging and discriminating and everything, is that attending to ego? No. If I attend to the vasanas, no. is that attending to ego? No. The vasanas are what make up the will. So ego is distinct from all of these, but takes all of these to be itself. So when we investigate ego, we are not investigating, as Bhagavan said in Maharsha's Gospel, there's a nice portion where he explains, ego is chitchadagranti. In your investigation into the source of this ego, Vahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. What is the essential chit aspect? That is, I am. That is the, the the jada aspect is the body, the person. The person is jada. The, the chit aspect of ego is I am. You hold if you hold on to I am, it will lead to the reality of ego, which is that pure awareness I am. I hope that is uh, that is clear. That's a, an all important distinction to recognize. We we say, oh, my ego this, my ego that, as if the ego belongs to Michael or to whichever person we take ourselves to be. Ego doesn't belong to the person. The person, the, the person belongs to ego. It's ego who says, I am this person. So to say my ego is like saying my me. It doesn't make any sense. We... <laughs> That is, ego they, they, Ego doesn't belong to anyone but itself. It, it, but even for ego to say, my me, would make no sense at all. It's just me. 
but it's not even me because if we investigate it, we find out, well, what we actually are is not even this ego. It is the pure awareness that underlies the appearance of this ego. Uh, Michael, there's another question which um, develops from this, so it might be yeah. better to answer them together. This is the last one. <laughs> and the question is, uh, um, it's that the ego is not the person me, but ego takes this person to make me feel I'm this person. But does it also... But does it also take other people around me, family, friends, society? It takes the other people to be my family, my friends, my society, my religion, my country, my this, my that. But ego is not any of these things. Ego is that which identifies all these things as I am, as I am mine. Michael, uh, yes, but but the thought thought uh, itself is that ego, right? Let's say when I say this is my body or this is my society or this is my language and my country, I uh, uh, if you boils down, if if you go one step backward, it's a thought, right, which is arising. Why are we yeah. saying it is not thought as well? I didn't the understand. First thought is ego. The ego is what Bhagwan called the uh, the thought called I. That is, it is, or in Sanskrit, in Tamil, he called nanenum ninevu, the thought called I. In Sanskrit, ahambriti, the I thought. It is a thought. Why? Because the only thing that is not a thought is satchit. Ego, though it has an element of satchit in it, because it identifies itself with a body, so ego is the conflated awareness, I am this body. Since the body is a thought, the conflated awareness, I am this body, is a thought. So ego is the first thought, the root of all other thoughts. So the thought, this is my country, is not ego. The I that says, I am this, this is my country, or this is my religion, or this is my, um, my whatever it is, my, my family, my friends, my society, my um, political party, or whatever it is, the I that says that is ego. Mm. So uh, ego is just the I that identifies itself with all these things. The I that takes all these things to be I. But it is not any of these things. So it's a root, uh, I mean, the first thought, which is actually, um, you know, uh, making uh, uh, fragmentation, uh, which is exactly. I and which is other thing and which is bonding with that. Exactly, exactly. And another thing to understand is, though, as Bhagavan said, ego is just a thought, it's the first thought, it is a thought unlike any other thought, because all other thoughts are jada. There's only one thought that is endowed with awareness. That is this first thought, ego. So all other thoughts are objects, whereas ego is the subject. What knows all other thoughts is ego. That is why Bhagavan says, of all the thoughts that rise in the mind, the first thought is this thought called I. Only after this rises do other thoughts rise. Why is that? Because all other thoughts exist only in the view of this first thought, ego. 
Correct, 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 correct. So it's very, very important for us to distinguish ego from all objects. The person we take ourselves to be is an object. This this object, Michael, is known not only by me, it's known by so many other people. So obviously it's an object. It's not it's not what me, but I take myself to be this object. So this is what is called Drik Drisya Viveka. We need to distinguish the seer from the seen. This so, is what Sankhya philosophy, this is the one useful insight of Sankhya philosophy. Sankhya is a is is a subject-object dualism. That is, Purusha is the subject, what we would call ego. Uh, 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 prakriti is all the objects, not only the physical objects, even the mind and the thoughts and the vastness, all are objects. They're all Prakriti. So that, that is the that is the the one useful insight of or, or the, it's, but it's not it's a very very important insight the sankhya distinguished the subject from the object the knower from the known that's a very very important so that is in a sense we can say the starting point of advaita but where advaita leaves sankhya behind is sankhya thinks that both purusha and prakriti exist when when they're not in contact then Prakriti remains abhyakta, unmanifest, but it's still there in an unmanifest form. But according to Advaita, all the Prakriti appears only in the view of Purusha, this ego. And even this ego is not what we actually are. If we investigate this ego, it will merge back in its source, and what then remains, the pure, the Suddha Chaitanya, the pure awareness that we actually are, that is that is our real nature. In in a way, uh, just uh, sorry, I'm just asking yes. one more question. So uh, let's say in our childhood, if if mother, uh, you know, uh, 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 don't start with saying that, uh, uh, you know, rub your eyes or rub your, uh, you know, wash your yes. Uh, hands. Yeah. Is is it a root cause of that conditioning making us that uh, I or where it starts? No, 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 no. It began long, long before that. <laughs> this whole of this life is just a dream. So, this dream is is just one of many dreams. So long as there's a dreamer, there'll be dreams. But dreamer is ego. This is another reason where we can distinguish ego from the person we seem to be. Because ego is the dreamer. The person we seem to be is a part of the dream. Got that is, the dreamer is not the person we take ourselves to be in a dream. That's why as a person in a dream, though the whole dream is our creation, if we're being chased by a monster, say, in our dream, we're very afraid and we run away and try and hide from it. We can't just will, oh, this monster, let this monster not exist. It doesn't happen like that because as soon as we start dreaming, we dream ourselves to be a person in that dream world. So the dream world seems to be not in our control. We can't control the things that are happening in dream. Just like we can't control the things that are happening. We can't just will that um, the the war in Ukraine or the war in uh, Yemen comes to an end. We can't uh, uh, will that pandemics come to an end. We can't will that poverty comes to an end. Because we, though we are the creator of all this, we mistake ourselves to be a creature, not the creator. 
The creature is the person we seem to be. The creator is ego. So, so ego exists way before uh, we get this physical yes, form. Yes, 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 yes. This is just one of this dream. This present life is just one of the many dreams dreamt by this ego. Very strong ego. Yes, yes. Ego is very strong, but where? What is the source of its power? The source of its power is within it. Is I am. So if we want to, if we want to vanquish this all-powerful ego, we need to go to a greater power than this ego. The ego will never vanquish itself until it faces a higher power. That higher power is our own real nature. That is Guru. That is Bhagavan. That is grace. That is why grace is absolutely necessary in this path. That is what Akshramlai is all about. It's all about um, handing over, trying to hand over charge of ourselves to him. You take charge of me. I've made a mess of things. You take charge of me. You, I can't get rid of this ego because it's, it, I am this ego. I'm not willing to let go of myself. You take charge of me. You make me willing to give myself to you. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Thanks. Right. And I see some other person has a hand raised. Yeah, thank um, you. Michael, can I just clarify yes. one thing? Yes. Um, this was, so um, the ego is uh, is actually the act of identifying. It's uh, it's identification as self. It's grasping, which it, itself it gives rise to. It's not just the act of identifying. It's that which identifies. Yes, but the, that would come, uh, but that is something which is attributed, right? It's something which is objectified, comes to be. Uh, you, you, can't have, you can't have identification without something that is identifying. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. But uh, Because there is a question about how the subject, of the, 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 because the question arises about the constitution of ego. That uh, how I mean, uh, um, um, if we think of it as ahamkara, which is um, sort of uh, the I concept, the I thought, or the I ing, uh, the making of self, or the making yes. of sort of the egotistical self, if you like, uh, yes. of the subject. Um, I mean, the problem becomes that if we attribute this sort of mix of you know this kind of subjective object as a, some kind of a prior existence, we're actually reifying. I mean, we're sort of detracting from what it is that is giving rise to it. I mean, how does it come to be in the first place? Yes, the nature of ego is to reify itself. It reifies exactly. itself by grasping form. I am yes. this body. I am Michael. That is the reified ego. But if the way to, to dissolve that reification, dissolve that identification, is to look at ego itself. If we look at it, it runs away because it, ha it, it has no substance of its own. It's got neither form, that's why Bhagavan says it's, a, it's formless, and it's got no substance. It borrows its substance from Satchit. That is, it borrows its existence and its awareness from Satchit. It borrows its form from the body. But it is neither. So the ego doesn't actually exist at all. It's only of when course, we... Of course, but uh, to dissolve the ego, 
uh, is there something we have to stop doing, like grasping and identifying yourself? No, and so ego can never stop grasping. Ego will always be grasping. So Bhagavan gives us a trick. Instead no, of no, grasping, is ego up grasping, thing, or is ego constituted by grasping? No, ego, e ego grasp. Ego is the one who is grasping. So that ego is pre-existent. It, because ego this is the the very that, uh, the very nature of ego is to grasp. Yes. But it, exactly. it, it, it is not the grasping, it is the grasper. So Bhagavan says, grasping form, it comes into existence. So what is grasping? It is ego that is grasping. But it doesn't come into existence. It, it doesn't exist. Into, that is, grasping is the very nature of ego. So since grasping is the very nature of ego, asking ego not to grasp, is not no, very no, no, practical. But, but Michael, so what Bhagavan where... says is, instead of grasping other things, grasp yourself. But isn't it a problem to attribute, uh, I, I mean, uh, then, you know, one uh, because the problem I have is this, that one is saying that the grasper exists. I mean, it doesn't really exist, but actually it uh, precedes any grasping. Yes, right? yes. Uh, and when one says, and uh, yes, it does, but uh, in a sense, but at the same time, that is positing something reified. Uh, something um, uh, sort of, uh, I, I mean, when I'm saying that that doesn't really exist, then how is it happening? Or what's happening? I, I mean, this is, I think, a problem that um, if you look at the word ahankara, it has both the aspect of doing, and then one can say that it's something which comes to be. It's, a, I mean, this is really, you know, the constitution of the subject, uh, you know, which is opposed to an object. And one of the reasons I'm saying this is that in the case of Sankhya, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on Sankhya at all, uh, but uh, I'd ask this question to some people who are, and uh, the entire, um, and sort of the Purusha, as I understand it from them, is not really the subject opposed to an object. That's a much later stage because the Purusha is pure awareness, pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the ego is sort of, part, it would really be the Prakriti aspect. It would be, I mean, including the Ahankara and the Buddhi and all of that. Anyway, uh, that's something, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, um, this is an area, but I don't see how, you know, because this is this is the problem which uh, for which Advaita Vedanta is has been criticized by others like the Buddhists and so on, uh, that because for them, for example, the subject is constituted. You know, we make the subject, we make uh, this egotistical self. Uh, you know, which is always grasping. I mean, if we say it's, of course, it is this mix, but we cannot uh, be agents. We cannot grasp an object without the subject coming into being. Uh, from somewhere, I mean, and this thing of a grasper, I mean, uh, I mean, it's saying that there has to be an agent before, uh, you know, uh, something else, and then they, saying, well, of course, there is no agent, but they, then uh, they, they can't be doing without a doer. They can't be grasping without a grasper. But the the thing is, if we try to understand this by our intellect, we will definitely get ourselves into confusion because. Ego is Maya. Maya is Yama. It doesn't actually exist. So we are trying to use our, we, the ego is trying to use its intellect to, to understand itself. It can never do so. It will always get itself into confusion. The only way to deal with ego is to turn within and to see what we actually are. That is why Bhagavan's philosophy 
is not a philosophy for academia. For, for, for academia. It is a practical yeah, philosophy. I'm not, it is, no, yeah. I, I'm not saying that any, in any offensive That's way. Not. I'm saying it, but, but, acad, but academic philosophers will always find reasons and they'll go on and on. But mm -hmm. if we are for liberation, if our intention is to be free of this ego, we, we won't try to... That is, but the basics have been basic principles have been explained by Bhagavan. Ego doesn't actually exist. It seems to exist when when it when it rises. It seems to exist, and as soon as it rises, everything else comes into existence. It grasps those other things. So we we Bhagavan has told us enough about the nature of ego for us to set about getting rid of it. it, it as you say, it it. Ego is not actually a thing, but it seems to be a thing because it's grasping. But the, the only way, to, if we try and puzzle over it and try to understand, it'll will only can. It, has anyone ever been able to understand Maya? It, why is it called Anivachaniya? It cannot be adequately conceived. But the point is, Bhagavan has given us. We we have got ourselves in a mess. Bhagavan has shown Bhagavan us the way out of you. this mess. Yeah. The way out of this mess is this ego doesn't actually exist, but it seems to exist. Because the ego seems to exist, everything else seems to exist. So how to get rid of this ego? To investigate it. Instead of, so long as we look at other things, so long as we try to understand egos, so try, we try and make conceptual sense of all these things, we are attending to things other than ourselves, and we are perpetuating the existence of ego. The only way to get rid of ego is to turn our attention, is, to, is for ego to turn its attention back on itself, for ego to cease grasping anything else, cease trying to understand itself. Try to grasp itself. If it tries to grasp itself, there's nothing to grasp, and so it ceases to exist. So, so I'm having Michael is that this is not what I was saying. I was saying, yeah. in fact, I, I go along with what you're saying yeah. because uh, I, I think this is a real issue uh, uh, um, in terms of understanding. It's nothing to do with academia or concepts. Yeah, yeah. This is simply about understanding because the understanding is important for practice. Yes. And uh, there it's a question of attention and the type of attention. Yes. This is what we're coming to. So when we're talking about turning in, it's a certain kind of attention. Yes. You know, it's it's moving towards self-attention. Whereas yes. when we're, you know, when we're looking to yes. objects, yes. it's an outward turned attention. Yes. It's, and it's a laying claim to things uh, as, uh, as I, mine or whatever it yes. might be. Whereas in the other way you're turning in. Yes. Now, this is what, and uh and in a way, the switching of attention is really the source of, you know, of looking at the ego, getting rid of the ego and all the aspects of ego as we yeah. come to it. But then we need to talk about attention rather than a grasper and so on, because I think that really uh, is, I'm not sure how practically, whether that is really something which is useful or whether that's something which actually uh sort of kind of reinforces a certain kind of delusion. Um, because I think it's this, it's this business of attention that really needs to be uh, kind of, it's the practice and the understanding has to lie with that. And in yeah. there, when we're, we're turning in, and because this is something which, are, which certain, um, certain women have talked about who've been meditators, um, um, some Christian women, and they, and they talk about attention, which is a kind of a waiting 
right? Um, as yeah. opposed to an attention, which is a kind of, a, which is sort of muscular or grasping or whatever it yeah. might be. Yeah. And this is what I'm getting at. We're not just talking about grasping an object. You can only grasp an object when there is a subject, yeah. but the constitution of the subject comes about through some sort of movements of attention, if you like, yes, uh, yes. perhaps, you know, so this is what I'm trying to get at that it's, uh, yeah. yeah, and yeah. That, that, anyway. that, is, that is a nice point. One of, one of the meanings of attend is to wait upon. So the, the, that, that, is a, that gives us a sense of the quality of the nature of self-attention. It is, it is, a, it is a, it's an abidance, it's a being. It, it's a very, very subtle attention. But one more thing that I would say regarding what you say, yes, it is all a matter of attention, but attention implies one who is attending. So the one who is attending has to turn its attention back on itself. This is what is meant by self-attentiveness or self-attention. So, but self-investigation is necessary because ego seems to exist. If ego, the attender, the one who attends, turns its attention away from other things back towards itself, it will subside and dissolve back into its source. So the, the attender will cease to exist only by attending to itself. So that that attention by turning our attention back to in, in ourselves. When you're waiting, you 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 if you're waiting for something, if you're impatiently waiting for something, you're not really waiting. Attending, attending means waiting. If if for for example, in um in old days when there were kings and queens and so on, they would have their attendants. They, they, those who, or even in the case of Bhagavan, we talk about Bhagavan's attendants. They were sadhus who were who were waiting to help Bhagavan. They will be waiting there. They just be they, they, part of part of filling the role of an attendant is to wait, just to be quiet. If if the attendants constantly ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, what shall I do? What shall I do? That'll be just annoying. The, the attendant has to just quietly observe. And when there's a need to act, they act. But that's talking about the external form of attention. But that gives us a sense of the quality of the type of attention that we need. When we attend, often people say, I, I don't know what more to do. I turn my attention in, but then nothing happens. Nothing should happen. If something's happening, you're not attending to yourself. So it, it, this attention is an attention that will lead to uh, the subsidence of all activity that is to the extent to which we attend to ourselves to that extent this ego that had risen to do things subsides so doing comes to an end and we end up in being so by attending to ourselves that leads to the state of just being ourselves to the extent to which we attend to ourselves to that extent ego subsides and we remain as we actually are. Does, does, do some other questions, Michael. Uh, do you want to continue, or should we close? Uh, okay, quick, quickly, because I, I think this is a, if particularly if the questions are about this, this is a very important point because this is the very heart of Bhagavan's teachings. What it's all about. 
What so is, think what is Nila, ego and what is that investigating ego? So I'm not sure who raised the hand first. I think Nilay first. Yeah, just really quickly. Yeah, it is on this point. Thank you, Michael um, and Shalini. Um, uh, actually, when um, basically my question is, I think you said uh, that the ego comes first and essentially then the body and the mind and the world arise. So along that, if I'm characterizing that correctly, along that line, it, it got I stimulated the question within me that is that ego that's coming first preceding the body and the mind, which is me and the world, which is this world. Um, is that the same ego that's um, arising prior to the arising of Michael James or Shalini? Is it basically the same ego? Um, that's um, be, since it's preceding a specific body, mind, and the world, is it actually just I is it the same ego basically? There is one ego. Who is that one ego, the one who is seeing all this? That is the, the dreamer of the, the, the one, the dreamer of the dream is the one who sees the dream. Right. Okay. And the same that dreamer, is, for, the same dreamer, it's just yeah. one dreamer for all one these dreamer. characters that are on this Zoom, for example, but, in the world. That is, when you dream, you don't dream yourself to be many people in the dream. You dream yourself to be one person. That is why the Bhagavan's teaching is also Eka Jiva Vada. There is only one Jiva. Who is that one Jiva? The one who sees all this. Oh, uh, okay. So there's oh, the, the one ego. There's, so to answer my question, there's one ego, and that one ego is the one Jiva that's seeing the world, which contains yes. all the entities and objects. But, but ego always sees itself as a person. So since ego sees itself as a person, it sees all other persons as egos. So it appears to us, so long as we look outwards, in effect, there are multiplicity of jivas. That but there actually are not. There's just one. Yeah, actually, just they, yes. So, so long as you're dream, of identified thoughts. Basically. So long as you're dreaming, there seem to be many people in your dream. And if you ask anyone in your dream, are you seeing this same world I'm seeing? They'll say, yes, of course, we're seeing it. <sighs> Do you see this world even when I go to sleep? Yes, of course. If I'm awake, I see the world when you're asleep. They will tell us. So, and we will believe them in the dream. It will all seem very real. But when we wake up, we know that the testimony of all those other people, all those other egos, was no testimony at all because they all existed only in our view. Okay. Thank you, Michael. So we need, when Bhagavan says things like, this world is a dream, we need to think through these things to the logical conclusion. In a dream, there, is, in, there can never be more than one dreamer in a dream. And, but well, it's not even the dreamer in the dream. The dream is in the dreamer. So the, the dreamer dreams and it takes itself to be one person in that dream. And from the perspective of that one person, it sees the world. It sees the dream world. Okay. So though the whole dream is contained in the dreamer, from the dreamer's perspective, the dreamer is the center of the, 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 the dreamer takes itself to be a person that seems to be the center of the dream world. That's the like the, the in the, there's two dreamers basically. There's a real no, dreamer. No, 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 only one dreamer. That one dreamer 
takes itself to be a person. And since it sees the world from the perspective of that person, it seems to be in the center of the dream. Now we all feel I am in the center. When we see the world from the perspective of the person we now take ourselves to be, we seem to be occupying the central position. Right, but then there's a that that dreamer that's identified is identified actually as all of these entities. So there's, no, do, do you take yourself to be many people or one person? No, I don't. But like that 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 I is ego. Right. Mm -hmm. You earlier you earlier said the ego comes before me. <laughs> ego is the me. When you say I, when you say me, you're referring to ego. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I got a little confused because I was understanding you up to the point where you said the dreamer is taking itself to be the body-mind and then sees this multiplicity. But, but that one dreamer is actually taking itself to be many body-minds from, from its perspective because there are many characters. In this no, 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 no. It takes the dream always takes itself to be only one. Have you ever experienced a dream in which you've you've experienced yourself as more than one person? How is it no. possible to take yourself to be more than one person? It's not possible. Okay. So is that like solipsism then? Because then, then in my world, there's just it, it, there's it, just it, this it is character. But... It it is a form of solipsism, but it's a very deep and refined forms of solipsism. Because solipsism usually says there's just one person or just one mind. This is not even there are multiplicity of people, obviously, and every person is a mind. This is saying there's only one subject, one knower of all these. And all the people in this dream, including the person we take ourselves to be, is an object in the view of that subject. But that subject takes itself to be this particular object. I am this body. But the subject is not the body, is not the object that it takes itself to be. Got it. But okay. that subject cannot cannot come into existence without identifying itself with an object. Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Bhagavan's okay. teachings are very, very deep and very radical. That's why in the next verse, in verse 26, he says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. We cannot make sense of that verse if we think there's more than one ego. <laughs> because when he says, if ego comes into existence, that implies one ego. Everything means all the other things, all, all the other people, all the other seeming egos. They exist only in the view of this one ego. Once when, when this a similar discussion was going on in Bhagavan's hall, someone asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, there are so many of us here. Which one is the one ego? And Bhagavan said, you are that. And then some, someone else said, Bhagavan, what about me? You are that. 
that seems to be a contradiction. How we can resolve that contradiction by simply recognizing the one who is experiencing all this is the one ego. Right. But it seems to us that there are many experiencing this, but who is the one who is experiencing those the, the semi existence of many experiences? Well, it's me for, for, for me, but you for you, as Bhagavan answered. And that's no, the no, no. If, if you think like that, you're again, you're, you're missing the point. Bhagavan isn't concerned about you or he or she or it. He's concerned only about I. Yeah. Okay. In your experience, how many eyes are there? Just one. Right. So you are that. Tatvamasi. Mm -hmm. Know yourself and you know everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Michael, I will tell very quickly. Yeah. I just wanted to say, because now we uh, talked um, uh, about that. Uh, now, I mean, we made it clear that we cannot, I mean, of course, it was obvious and before, uh, before also, but uh, today in this talk, that um, uh, there is no such thing like uh, his or her or someone's ego is strong. We cannot say because uh, yes. ego <laughs> doesn't. Yes, we cannot. So I mean that, uh, but uh, in this context, uh, in this regard, it is maybe important to think about what about your own ego, because I mean that uh, maybe this is our ego who says that someone's ego is strong, for example, right? Even though we cannot even say like this, someone's ego, but it means that uh, something wrong is maybe with us. I mean that we we somehow it's like a game. We still we we are involved in this game that uh, we um, try to evaluate whose ego is stronger and whose ego is weak and so on. I mean that it is our own ego that uh, that does it. I mean we cannot say our own ego, but when, I mean that our, ego our self as ego. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. So I mean that uh, we that have is, to we shouldn't that. allow any space between ourselves and this ego. It's we who are now who have risen as ego, and it's in the view of ourselves as ego. But there are so many people, and those people seem to have egos. And we say this person has got a strong ego. This person yes. is a very humble person. We we make all these judgments, but this is yes. all in the view of the one ego that we now mistake, but we we now seem to be. Exactly. This is what I wanted to say. That yes, this the, this problem now is solved. We cannot at all even say that someone has ego. It is it's impossible to yes, someone. Yes. Has... <laughs> yes. Ego okay, has the person. Person doesn't have the ego. Because ego is that which says I am this person. Exactly, it and we aware of itself uh, as I am this person. Yes, and we. I mean that uh, this is this is very, like uh, let's say, like one of problems that uh, we are uh, very easily um, are, are getting involved in to judge. I mean, to this is how our own ego. I mean, our own ego. Yes, how yes. ego works. Yes, when we look outside, we see the world. We see good and we see bad. We see things we like, we see things we dislike, We've, all sorts of judgments are there, all sorts of evaluations are there. This is all the result of, look, of rising as ego and looking outwards. The solution, stop looking outwards, look back within, ego will thereby subside, and all good people, all bad people, everything yes. will resolve back into the one being that we actually are. Yes, thank you very much. This is what I wanted right. to do. Thank you very much. <laughs>